are kicking off episode 432 of Monster Kid Radio with the song. <laughs> Bear with me, ladies and gentlemen, I can't roll my R's. Mojer del Hotel Montaña. It is from the band The Struendos. They are a surf band based out of Quito, Ecuador, and they gave us permission to play this song from their recent EP release that you can find at the struendos.bandcamp.com or just follow the link in the show notes. They gave us the okay to play this song on this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to the show and welcome you to an episode where we're going to talk about a unique vampire film, the second installment of the so-called Toho Bloodthirsty Trilogy. We're going to be talking about 1970s Lake of Dracula. And I'm not doing it by myself. You guys and gals know the format by now. I'm going to be joined by somebody. And this time, we are joined by author, role-playing game designer, award winner, Kenneth Height. Oh, and he's a podcaster, too. We're going to talk a little bit about that and what he does, as well as the movie here later on in this episode. Also, we've got Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. And, yeah, we're doing another What You Waiting For Derek segment. Spoiler. Also, Professor Frenzy is here with another bedtime story, so that'll be coming up here as well. Before we get into the meat of the show, though, just a couple of things I wanted to talk about real quick. Uh, some, some business, I suppose you could call it. This past Sunday, there was an episode of Disney Indiana that was released. That is the podcast produced by Tracy and Scott Morris, but it wasn't produced by them this time around. It was by me. So I'm going to recommend you guys and gals check it out if you want to hear more of my blathering about monsters and how it kind of sort of ties into to Disney by way of Marvel Comics. So you can do that. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. The reason I produced that episode, though, is because Scott and Tracy had a lot more on their minds. And Scott had a lot more on his heart. If you follow him on Facebook, you know that uh, he had some pretty significant surgery, open heart surgery. And, uh, you know... That kind of takes priority over this whole podcasting thing. And, you know, since they're some of my best friends, I thought, hey, I'll, I'll produce a show for them. And they were up for it. So go check that out and let them know what you thought of it over at DisneyIndiana.com. And let me know what you thought of it, too. I'd be curious to hear what you think. The other bit of business I want to talk a little bit about here is something that came up and was discussed at this past Monster Bash weekend. I typically say that the soft cutoff when it comes to what years the movies are from that I'm going to talk about here on Monster Kid Radio is typically 1968. A couple of different reasons for that, but the main one being is that that's the year The Night of the Living Dead came out, which is a fantastic film, but it also changed the horror game. You know, it really kind of made horror cinema different. It was a paradigm-shifting moment. I've toe-dipped a little bit into the 1970s, and I think I might have even done something from the 80s at one point. So yeah, when I did The Monster Squad. But... You know, typically I stay in that pre-1968 zone, and I'm still going to, but I'm going to be less restrictive about movies that came out in the 70s anyway, as evidenced by this week's movie. And, you know, if you look at what I've done recently and what's coming up over the next few months, well, you'll see that I've got some movies from the 70s as well. Now, so we're going to stick to that whole Monster Kid thing. Not every horror movie that came out in the 1970s is Monster Kid radio material. It's, it's one of those things where you kind of know it when you see it. And when I see a movie that came out in the 70s that might be Monster Kid uh, compatible, I'll know it. And then we'll talk about it here on this show. In fact, next month, there are two movies that we're going to be talking about that came out post-1968. So, you've got that. Stay tuned to find out what those are going to be. Or better yet, go subscribe to the Monster Kid Radio on YouTube YouTube channel, where I'll upload a video announcing September's schedule for the podcast. 
Speaking of September, go ahead and start making your plans now because the Rose City Comic Con is happening mid-September. That's September 13th through the 15th. And on September 13th, I'm going to be on a panel with friend of the show, guest of the show, David Heath. David's been on this podcast as well as the Plan 9 by 9 podcast. And he asked if I wanted to be a panelist for his panel. We're going to be talking about classic horror in modern comic books. And I'm really excited to be part of that discussion. Dominique Lampsies will be there as well. So it's not just me. We got some solid Monster Kid Radio representation happening at that panel. If you're going to be in the area, I'd love to meet you. And I'll probably also be going to the convention on Sunday the 15th just to kind of wander the floor with friend of the show, Tom Doffel. So maybe I'll see you there. And finally, the last thing I want to mention real quick before we get into the episode is the Hollywood Theater's Godzilla-thon. I know I'm incredibly lucky that I live in an area that supports so many independent theaters showing these movies, these classic monster movies, kaiju films, black and white universal classics, hammer films, whatever. I'm spoiled. And the end of August, beginning of September, the Hollywood's going to spoil me again because we've got Godzilla-thon happening. They're all 35 millimeter prints, not digital. This is 35 now, they are dubbed in English, but you know what? It's 35 millimeter. You're going to get to see Destroy All Monsters, Godzilla vs. Megalon, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, and Godzilla on Monster Island on the big screen over the course of a couple of days. I'm not going to be able to go to both days. I'm trying to decide which day I'm going to go. If you are going to be at Godzilla-thon, though, let me know. I'd love to meet you, and maybe that'll help me decide which day I'm going to actually show up and get my kaiju on. Let me know. And finally, finally this time I mean it. Finally, I'd like to ask for your help with something. Last Halloween, we held the first annual Monster Kid Radio Halloween Virtual Crash, where I got up early on Halloween Day and we watched movies together over at Rabbit TV, and that ran all day long. There's a chat room going while we were watching the films. It was a blast. Well, unfortunately, Rabbit TV is starting to go away. Some of the software is still there, but there's no support happening anymore, and it's it's not very stable, and you really can't get in all the time. So I don't want to rely on Rabbit TV for this year's Halloween event. I'm looking for an alternative. Now, what I'm looking for is a place that will let me stream movies from my computer for you to watch with a chat room. Those are the two things that I'm looking to do here. Now, we've been looking at a website called Watch Together, and that's the number two instead of T.O., so watch two together. And it looks promising, but it doesn't seem to allow me to stream movies from my home computer. It would allow me to stream movies from YouTube, which does introduce some other copyright issues, and we're trying to avoid that. Not that we're doing anything wrong, just that YouTube's got an overly protective copyright strike system, and, and good for them, rightly so, but, you know, it is going to impact what we're doing. I've been looking at Twitch does anybody out there use Twitch for anything? If you do, get a hold of me. Let me know. I'd love to pick your brain gently, not Frankenstein style, but I'd like to pick your brain and uh, see if maybe Twitch will work for what we have in mind for this year's Halloween virtual crash. Okay, that's enough of this jibber jabber, this yak, and you're not here to listen to me talk. You're here to listen to me talk with other people about monster movies. So why don't we go ahead and roll into all of that right after this. If you rebuild 
They burned it down. If you rebuild it, they will come. You didn't hear them? Beg your pardon? The voices? People? If you rebuild it, they will go. They blew it up. If you rebuild it, they will come. They demolished it. If you rebuild it, they will go. But horror has a permanent address. Welcome to my home. The house of Frankenstein lives. You see, uh, we began a project a few years ago, but unfortunately it was it was interrupted. And we're most anxious to take it up again. In September and October, the Fire and Water Podcast Network presents a Supermates tradition, covering four classic horror films and four related comic book adventures. I must find more victims before my work is done. You need look no further, vampires. We'll take the bat jet to the Hall of Justice and transform the other super friends. <laughs> Featuring an all-star cast. James Spader. Are you crazy? Jack Nicholson. No, just marking my territory. Anthony Hopkins. She lives beyond the grace of God, a wanderer in the outer darkness. Lon Chaney Jr. One becomes accustomed to the darkness here. Michelle Pfeiffer. You're afraid that when it gets dark, you'll attack me. Vincent Price. Let's, uh... See what the rest of this mausoleum looks like. Gary Oldman. Enters freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Winona Ryder. I almost feel pity for anything so hunted as this count. Peter Cushing. I am a doctor of medicine, law, and physics. To the best of my knowledge, doctorates are not awarded for witchcraft. But if ever they are, no doubt I shall qualify for one. And Keanu Reeves. Doctor! This Halloween, visit our field of screams at the scenic house of Frankenstein where terror is only a listen away. (laughs) But the room was quiet. Had it been a nightmare? What woke him? Was the candle in the antique mirror moving? Was there something standing by the curtains? Was he mad? (laughs) The Crimson Cult. So terrifying they won't let us tell you about it here. She'd wandered alone. The passageway between the walls was damp and musty. She dropped her candle. And then I heard it. Now she has no head. It happened in Horror House. I was there. A nightmare combination of shock and terror. And you're invited behind forbidden doors. Horror House stars Frankie Avalon and Jill Hayworth. The Crimson Cult features Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee. See them together for the first time, but don't see them alone. Rated GP. You'll meet her at night in a dark place. She's beautiful, and she'll be waiting for you, waiting to love you to death. (coughs) New World Pictures presents The Velvet Vampire. She'll love you to death. And on the same bill, this second horror shocker, Scream of the Demon Lover. Was he a man, or was he the depraved monster resurrected from a grisly death to stalk the night with a loathsome craving which only the most unspeakable horrors could satisfy? You'll find out when you hear the Scream of the Demon Lover. It may be the last sound you hear. See The Velvet Vampire and Scream of the Demon Lover. Both in shocking color, rated R. If you see them at night, don't walk home alone.
there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week's film, Lake of Dracula, was never featured in FM, so we will continue looking issue by issue at films that were featured and seeing if we have heard about them before on MKR or ask, What you waiting for, Derek? Issue 2 of Famous Monsters had articles on Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, Girl Monsters, and Horror Hosts, but no specific film was featured in an article. In Issue 3, we have three previews to look at, movies that were coming out around April of 1959. The first article is a two-for-one featuring a film we have seen before and a Whatcha Waiting For, Derek. The first film is Monster from Piedras Blancas, which was featured on Monster Kid Radio 389 with Chris McMillan. It was one of the first films I did a Famous Monsters segment for, so we even talked about this article. The second film is a surprising Whatcha Waiting For, Derek, considering the classic pedigree of its director. It is Night of the Ghouls, directed by Ed Wood. The article is a detailed, spoiler-filled synopsis of the film, apparently taken from the script, because it includes large amounts of dialogue from the film in quotes. For example, there is this ditty from Chriswell. For many years I have told the almost unbelievable, related the unreal, and showed it to be more than fact. Now I tell you a tale of the threshold people, so astounding some of you may faint. This is a story of those in the twilight time, once human, now monsters, in the void between the living and the dead, monsters to be pitied, monsters to be despised. And here's a quote from Officer Kelton. Monsters, space people, mad doctors, they didn't teach me anything about such things at the police academy, yet that seems to be all I've been assigned to since I came on duty. Why do I always get picked for these screwy details? Sounds like something Mark Temple, Monster Hunter, would say. The third film featured in FM3 is 1959's 4D Man, another What You Waiting For Derek movie. There are five pictures from the film and this brief preview. One for the money, two for the show, three to make ready, and four to grow. Old. This show is about a deadly four-dimensional man. In addition to the usual measurement of width, breadth, and height. He has death. Kiss him and see the other world. Tony Harris, age 13, is credited with helping his pop, Jack Harris, dream up this kiss of death man, who can walk through walls but, vampire-like, needs the life force of others to keep himself from becoming a modern mummy. This hair razor is by the producers of The Blob, who let Famous Monsters local reporter behind the scenes at their Pennsylvania picture-making studio to bring you the advanced photos of the zero man whose transmatter touch means instant aging to friend and foe alike. Watch for this corpse maker, but don't get too close if you value your life. That's all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Till next week, this is Kenny for MKR. Adios! Famous Monsters of Hollywood magazine names it Shock Award winner The Monster of Piedras Blancas The Monster of Piedras Blancas The world's most shocking monster Stalks its unsuspecting prey Feasts its eyes on the next victim to writhe in its slimy arms The screen's most nightmarish beast
a claw-fingered, scaly-skinned, half-human crustacean, turning a lonely lighthouse village into a frenzied bedlam of blood-curdling horror. Never have you known such cringing terror, then trapped in a torment of unendurable suspense. See the movie named the most brain-paralyzing shock story of them all, The Monster of Piedras Blancas. Ladies and gentlemen, here is an important message from Jack H. Harris, producer of 4D Man. Imagine a check for $1 million being made out to you. In my new film, you will see 4D Man perform feats never seen on the screen before. And if you, any one of you listening to me, can actually perform in real life the feats ascribed to 4D Man, $1 million in cash will be yours. Your admission ticket to see 4D Man in widescreen and color may be worth $1 million. 4D Man is the most amazing motion picture ever made. The story of one man who solved the mystery of the fourth dimension. Even in this century of wonders, when science holds nothing to be impossible, you'll gasp in awe at the feats of the 4D Man. In color to thrill you as never before, 4D Man. C-3PO, Loki, Mace Windu, Dr. Bruce Banner, Captain Rex, Venom, Princess Leia, Jean Grey, Darth Maul, Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, Imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Hindu. Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. Today's story is Doctor of Horror. It is from the Vault of Horror number 13, the June-July issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Ghastly Graham Ingalls. So sit back, relax, while I tell this bloody tale. Way back in ye old England's Surgeon School of Hampshire, Dr. Alfred Lemonet was an anatomy teacher. The instructors were supposed to supply the bodies used for dissection lessons. 
He was close to being fired because he didn't have enough pupils, and he didn't have enough pupils because he didn't have enough cadavers to dissect. So Lemonet did what any self-respecting horror story doc would do. He stole freshly buried bodies from the graveyard. Soon he had all the bodies and pupils he needed. He became the most popular instructor at the school. But still, he wanted more. As time went on, the dean of the anatomy school was going to retire, and he and another doctor by the name of Crenshaw were in line to take his place. Some representatives from the Royal Medical College were visiting to pick his successor. If Lemonet wanted to be made dean, he was going to need a great body. Well, you know what I mean. Crenshaw came to Lemonet to inquire about his cadaver acquisition activities, and Lemonet got one. Crenshaw himself. He defaced Crenshaw's face so no one would recognize him. Lemonet's demonstration was a huge success, and since Crenshaw apparently dropped out of the race, Lemonet was made dean. But Dean Lemonet's ambition wouldn't let him rest. When the royal surgeon was retiring due to ill health, he wanted the position and would do anything to get it. He was told that if he could prove that the school had improved since he had become dean, he would get the position. Lemonet figured that if he could provide cadavers for all the classes at the school, that would be enough for him to get the appointment. He went to a wharfside bar and engaged some cutthroats to get him some fresh bodies. And if they had to kill some folks, so be it. Just keep the mayhem to the docks. Since this was an important job, he wanted to keep an eye on his hired killers just to be sure there would be enough bodies for the inspection by the royal surgeon. It was a rainy night, so there weren't many people out in the streets to be, um, acquired. In the shadows, he watched the killers come up empty as they searched for victims. Finally, frustrated, he jumped out at them and told them that they would have to go into the houses to get what he needed. Dr. Lemonet's assistant waited in his offices for the bodies he was told would be delivered. Time was getting late. No cadavers showed up and Lemonet was missing as well. Finally, there was a knock on the door. It was a ruffian with a body bag. The man was paid and the body was laid out on the table. Soon, the assistant would see the identity of the cadaver. It was Dr. Lemonet. The end. I hope you enjoyed that gruesome story. This story is a typical he-got-what-he-deserved tale that EC was famous for. In this case, though, the structure of the plot was a little fussy. It's like it was a three-page story that they had to stretch out for six. The doctor had to get the bodies to keep his job, then to be promoted, then to be promoted again. And just a note, Lemonet's name is spelled L-E-M-O-N-E-T. I could have pronounced it differently, but I thought lemonade would be distracting. Too much like lemonade. Graham Ingalls turned in some of his signature work here. There are scratchy lines, facial details are expressed by shadows, distorted anatomy, even panels that don't depict bad things look gruesome. One panel shows Lemonet talking to his assistant, and you could see his saliva sticking to his mouth from his top teeth to his bottom. It's that same unsavory look that the ghoulish vault keeper has. Unsettling for sure. If you're interested in a copy of The Vault of Horror Volume 1, the book can be purchased on Amazon, and you could find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics, and Bat Books for Beginners, where we talk about historical Batman and Bat Family comics. 
You can also catch me on Twitter at Professor Frenzy and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube where you can find the Professor Frenzy show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Right now, Michael Drake hasn't a care in the world. He's off on a camping holiday in California with his wife and two children, plus two dogs and a litter of puppies. What Drake doesn't know is that there are skeletons in his family closet and the bones are about to start rattling with a vengeance. You see, his name isn't really Drake. In the old country, it's pronounced Dracula. One thing, if what you say is true, you want to make a lot of money. No? Yeah, I'm going to sue all those people who've been making Dracula pictures without my permission. A very funny joke, Mr. Drake. But that is exactly the point. You are the only direct descendant. Don't forget, he wants your blood. We must prepare. In the daytime, we will look for him. At night, he looks for you. What's happening? Destroy him. Now! Summoned by the living dead, they come in the night, thirsting for human blood. Led by the most terrifying creature that ever walked the earth. Zoltan. Hound of Dracula. Now there's a nice doggy, but before you pet it, take a good look. It might be a friend of Zoltan, Hound of Dracula. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real, but fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good, real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. depths of darkness rises Garganta, the true king of monsters. He's on his way alive in person to scare the yell out of you. Garganta on the stage in Dr. Siltini's giant triple scream show for the first time on any stage. The stage show that brought you the Frankenstein monster in person now brings you direct from Hollywood Garganta, the giant gorilla of the universe, alive and in person, in a three-hour performance filled with more chills, thrills, laughs than you ever experienced in this century. 
It is engrossing, exciting, fascinating, filled with tense climaxes, gripping scenes, beautiful starlets. Yes, it's Garganta, this wild, inhuman menace, this 782 pounds of dynamite that makes Kong the gorilla look like a monkey. And that's not all. During the dark seance when all the lights are dim, ghosts, spirits, and vampires descend into the audience. You may find yourself holding a ghost, your girl, or someone else's girl. So watch out when the lights go out. But as Mae West would say, it'll separate the men from the boys. In New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, critics have proclaimed this stage attraction to be the show you must not miss. Even though it's a stage presentation to send you home in frantic flight, there are also some very eye-appealing scenes created by these beautiful Hollywood starlets in gorgeous costumes designed by Adrian. Yes, it's a stage show for everyone. But those of you under 16, please be accompanied by an adult. Not only because of what takes place during the performance in the Dark Sea Ants, but the adult may be afraid to walk home alone. Now is your first and only chance to see in person, on stage, and alive, Garganta, the giant gorilla of the universe. Watch for it. Remember the time, the place, and the date to see Garganta, alive and in person. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Listeners, if you've listened to any of the recordings that I've taken at previous Lovecraft film festivals, the panel recordings in particular, you might have heard this man before. This time, though, I've got him on the show as a proper guest. We're going to talk about a movie. We're going to talk about what he does and what his fascination is with vampires. Kenneth Height, welcome to the show. Hey, Derek. Thanks for actually putting me on the actual show instead of the the panel recording edition of the show. I feel like I've finally been allowed into the Sanctum Sanctorum. Well, <laughs> you've leveled up, you know, That's to what it use, is. use some gaming parlance there. Thank you. Which is appropriate because you are an award-winning game designer. I am. That is true. What <laughs> games have you been involved with? I was the lead designer on Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. I designed Fall of Delta Green also. It came out uh, last year. Uh, nice Black Agents and Trail of Cthulhu, both for Pelgrane. A number of uh, works for GURPS for the World of Darkness back when it was White Wolf's World of Darkness back in the day. A whole bunch of other uh, titles. I did two Star Trek games in a row, which is a great way to both teach yourself uh, game design and lose interest in Star Trek. So that, oh no. <laughs> uh, that happened. 
Um, uh, and then, uh, yeah, lots of, uh, bouncing around in between. I did a, a book for GURPS called GURPS Horror, which the third edition was mine and the fourth edition was even more mine. That sort of is the summa of horror. And then for Pelgrane, for my game Knights Black Agents, which is about burned spies hunting and being hunted by vampires, I did a mega campaign called the Dracula Dossier, in which the assumption is that Dracula was actually the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt to recruit a vampire, and that the book had been released as a cover-up. And we found out the truth and put lots of stuff in it, though not, as it transpires, a lot of Japanese uh, Draculas, because at the time I didn't have a copy of the movie, and I didn't want to pretend. That's awesome. Um, I, I knew some of your gaming background. I didn't realize it was so vast and, and yeah. varied, you know, with the White Wolf and the Star Trek and all this other. I had no idea. So that's awesome. Surprise for me. I get to learn something today. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> uh, you've also written uh, non-gaming books. You're, you're an author as well. And I think you've won an award for that too, haven't you? I think I've won gaming awards for my non-gaming writing, if that counts. Gotcha. But, there we go. There we go. Uh, for example, uh, my book, Tour to Lovecraft, is a sort of response to the critical response to Lovecraft, as well as my response to the stories, the true Lovecraft, the tales. I'm working on the sequel to that as we speak. Um, not technically as we speak, you know what I mean? In the broader sure. sense as we speak. <laughs> um, I did a book, The Thrill of Dracula, which is about the way Dracula, his story has changed, you know, from the original black legend about Vlad Tepish through the novel, through about 45 uh, movies after that, uh, that are movies about Dracula per se. And how that story gets, you know, rebuilding blocked as people take Legos out that they don't like and put in Legos that they do like. And the, and the image of Dracula sort of um, Theseus's ships along, still being Dracula, but being different in every incarnation. <laughs> and then I did four Lovecraftian children's books. So if you're, if you're a Lovecraftian child or, or no one, uh, check out uh, uh, Where the Deep Ones Are, uh, The Antarctic Express, Clifford the Big Red God, or my most recent Goodnight Azathoth. <laughs> wherever fine books are sold, which means pretty much the internet, but um, pretty, pretty much. There you go. <laughs> I'll make sure there are links in the show notes to all of these. Yeah. So people can check them out. Now I have read thrill of Dracula and it does have some gaming mechanics in it, but listeners, even if you're not a gamer, there's a lot to enjoy here. It came out in 2015 and it covers all the Dracula movies, pretty much the important ones anyway, up until that point, it even includes Dracula untold. And you do have gaming mechanics for the fist of bats, which yes. is kind of cool. <laughs> well, the fist of bats. I mean, if you've seen the movie and I, I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you must've seen Dracula untold fist of bats is far and away the best thing in the movie, just because it's <laughs> so ridiculously exotically operatically over the top in the way that the whole movie should have been. And only sometimes reaches the book came out as part of the fulfillment of the Kickstarter for Dracula Dossier, so I felt that the gaming audience, who had suffered through a, a lot of, of film criticism and, and, and narratology, deserved the stats for the Fist of Bats if they wanted to use it. But like you say, there's, there's notes about how to use the imagery of Dracula in these various movies and games, but the Fist of Bats, I think, is the only actual game mechanic in the whole right. thing. But what more game mechanics do you need than a Fist of Bats, I ask you? <laughs> Well, like you said, Dracula Untold probably could have used more fists of bats. Yes. So, and less emo breeding. <laughs> oh, man. I'm trying to get that image out of my head right now. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, have you been a fan of Dracula and just horror all your life? I mean, I've, I've certainly loved horror uh, as, as long as I can remember having watched things. I mean, I'm old enough that horror used to mean reruns of the black and white universals 
on uh, UHF stations Sunday afternoons. But I very rapidly discovered that there was more to it than that. First, from books in the library about other horror films. So I think everyone, again, everyone listening to this audience must have checked out that red-covered History of Hammer Films or Book of Hammer Horror that was basically just an excuse to show ladies with blood in their cleavage. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I began that that quest as a vampire scholar. I may have ended it in other places. I was interested in, you know, how else do you do, you do vampires? And isn't this great? And can vampires be in color? That's amazing. And I read Dracula, actually the novel, only like I think freshman year in college, I'd sort of gotten derailed by, you know, science fiction for a while. If it wasn't on a spaceship, it wasn't cool. But uh, college, you know, I had nothing to do. So I, I read Dracula and the first copy of Dracula that I bought from like some used bookstore, I was reading it. And the last four pages where Dracula is actually killed had been torn out of my copy. Oh, no. So I'm reading and reading and reading. It's like, I got to get done with this book before I go to bed. I cannot be going to sleep with Dracula still out there. And I get to the end and the four pages are missing. And I tell you, you know, it's, it's a little meta, but it's a good way to scare the bejesus out of yourself at three in the morning <laughs> in an empty concrete dorm room uh, to discover <laughs> that Dracula still lives, at least for until you can get to the college bookstore and get a better copy of Dracula. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> that, that would do it for me. Yeah, I've, I've, so, I've been I mean, in enough college dorm rooms to they're already scary to begin with, but then yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, obviously, Dracula is a great novel, and Dracula is a great myth, mythic figure. So I probably would have loved Dracula just as much, but that sort of you know sealed sealed the deal for me. That that lived experience of thinking about Dracula while trying to go to sleep was a was a strong influencer of my Dracula is the best, too bad for the rest attitude. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> Now that we've established your credentials, right? definitely going to talk about some Dracula movies, but we've got something that we do here on the show uh, with everybody that comes on. We have a little game that we play called the Classic Five. Right. I've got a deck of cards here, and each one of these cards has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style type question. Right. They're all about classic monster movies. There are no wrong answers. And even though I called it a game, it's really more of an icebreaker, conversation starter kind of thing. That's what we need, Derek. You and I need an icebreaker because we're so diffident. Sure. And, and reserved <laughs> with each other. And with others. I've, I've noticed that about us. And we've never spoken with each other before. So no, we yeah. have not. We are total strangers. <laughs> are you ready to play, sir? I am ready. All right, here we go. Uh, let's see. I'm going to give one more shuffle. And here we go. Card number one. <laughs> what classic monster movie do you think should be turned into a musical? A musical? Well, I mean, they already turned Phantom of the Opera into a musical. So does turning it back into a movie count? As, as an answer there, um, there was a ballet of Dracula that I think uh, worked really well. Uh, I think there was actually an opera of Dracula because uh, I think Edward Gorey did the set design or was that for a ballet as well? Maybe there's two ballets of Dracula. That'd be amazing. I, th I think um, Frankenstein uh, would make a great musical because you've got the, 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 the character and the, and the quest for love. You've got uh, everyone dying, which is a good component for a musical. Maybe that's an opera as well. Let's see. Musicals are supposed to be jaunty and happy and end with everyone singing themselves out. I guess um, Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> okay, then. Right. Some sort of big zombie chorus at the end. So the zombies are singing themselves out, not exactly. the humans surviving. No, the okay, people, gotcha. people are all dead. That's And then the song. Then the zombie song is like a big, happy, vampy, triumphal number. The villain vamp is always the best song in any musical anyway, so why not end on it? <laughs> there you go. All right. Card number two. Ken, what character from a classic monster movie would you like to have a drink or a meal with? <laughs> Not Dracula. I tell you what. <laughs> uh, 
Um, what character, though? I'll tell you what. I like the Peter Cushing of Van Helsing. I don't know if he's classic. Because the oh, yeah. Edward oh, Van yeah. Sloan uh, Van Helsing is kind of a stiff. But the Peter Cushing Van Helsing, I would love to have a, a drink with him and just pick his brain. I mean, he's an amazing guy, driven, fascinating. You know, a couple of bourbons that take the edge off and then, you know, the gates would come down and you'd hear a, a whole uh, dictaphone rant about uh, the undead. It'd be, it'd be terrific. I, I, would, I would love to talk to Peter Cushing Van Helsing. Again, uh, no offense, Edward Van Sloan, but... Um, uh, you're only good in the in the sequel, and you're barely in that one. Well, uh, speaking of Hammer films, I'm going to pull this card from our Hammer deck. Who never appeared in a Hammer film, but you wish they had? Oh, man. Never appeared in a Hammer, but I wish they had. Let me see. Did Alec Guinness ever appear in a Hammer? Alec Guinness? Oh. I mean, that's his era, right? When he's sort of coming out as, a, as an angry young man type actor. and Plus, he was doing sort of the, the comedies in the Ealing Studios. So I think mm-hmm. him as, as maybe a, a, an evil wizard or, a, or something like that would have been pretty terrific. Right. Wow. You're you're looking for maybe it could have been like a lost hammer folk horror ontological thing, and it could be called the Crypt of Merlin. And you're going out, and there's these guys exploring the English countryside looking for Merlin, and they find friendly old Alec Guinness, and he's there helping him out and telling him stories. And it turns out he's Merlin, and he's just working it up so that they will die and let him out of his prison. I think that'd be a good movie. I'm there for you know. If you're not going to write that, somebody else needs to, because that sounds amazing. <laughs> Warren Gray, come on down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Okay. Uh, card number four, who's your favorite mad scientist? Oh, man. Mad scientist has got to be Dr. Pretorius. He's the maddest. He's so mad that other mad scientists say, he's off on the mad, dude. <laughs> I mean, in a movie with freaking Frankenstein to be a crazier guy, that's hardcore. That is the life. He is all about that life. Plus, he makes homunculuses, which is something that I think not enough people make, except for in the, the weird little uh, puppet doll movies. <laughs> but I, I think Dr. Pretorius is my favorite. You suspect he probably trained a whole bunch of these guys in some long-forgotten graduate program at Visaria University, and now they're all out there maddening. <laughs> I've always felt that character was underused. I love that guy. He's so great. And it's it's so it's so much of a F you from James Whale to the studio, too. It's like, mm-hmm. ha you try just try, buddy. Yep. Yep. All right. Final card, and I'll admit to stacking the deck on this one. Which movie do you prefer? Murnau's Nosferatu or Browning's Dracula? Oh, well, I mean, you got to say Murnau's Nosferatu. It's it's a million times better as a movie uh, because Murnau does not stop directing after the first act. The actual atmosphere of horror in it is, is better. I don't think there's a, there's a scholar alive or a film buff alive who would say that Murnau does not lap Browning. That said... The first act of Browning's Dracula is one of the perfect single acts in all of horror. And it's the consummate mystery of, of I, I think, every scholar of what happened. <laughs> Did Todd Browning just finish drinking himself into a coma and then that was it for the rest of the shoot? I mean, what's the story there? Because that first act is so great and the rest of that movie is so dead and not in the good way. Obviously, Bernal's Dracula is, is, is or Nosferatu rather, is, is so alive, even though it's sort of celebrating this this uh, skeletal uh, monster that has seeped its way into everybody's life. There's no comparison as a film, but I got to say, you know, that first act of Dracula, maybe again, it's because those memories of seeing it on channel 34 monster chiller theater uh, when I was, you know, five, but Bella Lugosi and that uh, amazing cobweb have just burned themselves into my mind forever. If Browning or Carl Freund could have finished the movie to that standard, 
you'd actually have some legs to stand on and fight back against uh, one of the greatest films in all German cinema. Well, there you go. That's the classic five. But now I want to keep talking about Dracula. Of course <laughs> I you want do. To keep talking about um, Browning's Dracula. I I respect it a lot for what it is, what it did, and I love Mila Lugosi. I'm on Team Bela, one hundred percent. Absolutely, uh, I you agree with you. It. I agree with you, though. It does get very stagey and very slowed down towards the, well, like you said, about a third of the way in, it does start to slow down a little bit. And I don't know if it's because of the, the location is just, you know, let's set up the camera in the one set and call it good or what, but I don't know what caused that, but it does slow down quite a bit. So I'll agree with you there. Have you seen the Spanish version of Dracula? That you I have. Seen? What, are, what are your thoughts on that? The thing about the Spanish Dracula, um, first of all, out directing that movie is not hard. His first name is like Jeffrey, but I forget his last name, the, the director of it. Um, he had a, the advantage of seeing Browning's rushes. So he's able to sort of say, well, I can do better than that, which is, I think, easier than coming up with something on your own. But he still buries it. The trouble is that their Dracula is not a patch on Lugosi. He's he's sort of comical with the bugging eyes and the, and the rest of the sort of uh, affect that he has. And I get that horror is different in the 30s and horror is different in Mexico than it is in, in our Anglo-Saxon world. But that's just not a, an effective performance, certainly to me as an English speaker in the 21st century. But everything around it is so much better, and all the other casting is so much better. Lupita as um, uh, Mina, or I forget if she's called Mina in that version, but the, the Mina character is, <laughs> is, is so amazing and so uh, lively and terrific. And the, the guy that they got to play, uh, Van Helsing, is, is, is much better, too, than, than poor Edward Van Sloan is in, in that movie. So every other part works. But even their Harker, which is always the stiff role in these movies, uh, is is miles better than Mannering. Although again, that's not hard. the The real hole, sadly, is Dracula. And I think my thesis, to the extent I have one in the book, is if you miscast Dracula, you might as well just give it up because you have shot your bolt movie wise. Uh, George Melford was the director of or George Melford. Yeah. I thought it was Jeffrey, but George Melford, right? Now, I, there is floating around online, and I, I still haven't seen it, but I've heard there's a fan edit of the Lugosi Dracula with the pacing matching the Spanish Dracula, that they've kind of changed it up a little bit. They call it the oh, that'd be cool. I haven't yeah. seen it, but I, I hear it does kind of tighten it up and make it a little bit more exciting, I suppose. Uh, it would or, almost or have dynamic. to, but yeah. the thing is that some, but some of Melford's shots are just superior shots, too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, ideally what you'd want to do is sort of uh, slide them both in so that all the long shots and medium shots are Melford. And then when you cut to the, the close-ups of Dracula, you're using Dra- uh, Lugosi. I'm in agreement with you, sir, regarding the Spanish Dracula. It is more dynamic. Uh, it's a little bit longer even. And yeah. they have some little subplot things that they start to develop that you don't see in the Browning version. And they resolve the Lucy subplot, which mm-hmm. is just left completely hanging in the Browning version. Oh, I guess she turns into a vampire. Sucks to be her. <laughs> but in the in the Melford, they actually go out and they and they do the killing, and it's mm-hmm. it's a, it's a really good moment, and it just shows you know how that scene could have become another iconic moment in that Dracula, and sort of pulled the show together, even if the rest of it had been the leftovers of Dean and Hamilton that it was, uh, they could have pulled it together with the Lucy staking in the middle, and then the the end scene in the castle or in Carfax at the end. It would have been really strong, and it's a shame that it didn't happen. Okay, well, we've played the Classic Five, and we've probably added a sixth or seventh to there. So 
<laughs> now that we're warmed up and we, we get along, let's go ahead and talk about a, a different movie, another Dracula movie. This one is a little outside the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse. I typically try to go to about the late 60s with the movies we cover, but come on, it's a Dracula movie. It's always going to right. have a home here on the show. I'm talking about the second film in the so-called Bloodthirsty Trilogy. It's Lake of Dracula. came out in 1971. I had not seen this until it came out on Blu-ray last year. Uh, nor had I. Um, you know what? I say nor had I. It came out in television in America in 1980, which means there is every chance that I did see it at some point, but I would have been drunk and would not have been paying attention. But but as far as I know, I have not seen it. And then when, like you say, the Blu-ray came out, I, uh, I, I, I sprung for it. And first of all, a thousand congratulations to the good people at Arrow Films for their job on that restoration the version that we saw in the States, even in the theaters, was really hacked up. Uh, it was much shorter. Uh, the, the version on TV was pan and scan and, and garbagey. And Arrow just went bananas and they restored, obviously, not all the foot, not just all the footage, but they put together the, the great cinematography, which I think is the real star of that movie. Uh, Rokuro Nishigaki's uh, lensing is, is amazing. It, it's very much one of those movies that you say, it almost doesn't matter what happens in the movie because the camera just brings you so into the story that it that it becomes nearly irrelevant because every time you start to jib, there's another gorgeous shot of that lake under the trees or the house or whatever. And the, the color uh, got corrected back. It, it's just an astonishingly good Blu-ray. Oh, it, it's gorgeous. A million, million uh, shout-outs to Arrow Films for that, for doing a good job. Because you and I both know how easy <laughs> it is to do a hacky, garbagey Blu-ray release of something. <laughs> And I own plenty. <laughs> I was stealing myself to watch this and saying, it's Dracula. You've seen worse. You can get through it. And then from that first shot on the beach, I was just transported. It's like, oh, my God, this is really good. This this has actual strong uh, qualities. And I will enjoy it for itself, not just because it says Dracula on a box somewhere. It looks gorgeous. And uh, I mean, we live in a golden age right now of oh, yeah. Blu-rays coming out. I mean, probably not so good for the wallet, but there are so many amazing restorations coming out now. Shout Factory is just banging it out with a bunch of Universal titles right now. And from mm -hmm. what I understand, yeah. they look amazing too. Yeah. When they, when they bring it, Shout Factory does a great job. Mm -hmm. You know, we're saying it's a Dracula movie. It's a Dracula movie, but there's really not a Dracula in this. Oh, it's not a Dracula movie. No, it's not. <laughs> the guy says he's a descendant of Count Dracula. I mean, it's definitely a, a Gaijin brings pollution movie. <laughs> so in that sense, it is a Dracula movie because Dracula is all about fear of foreigners. Mm -hmm. But we're the foreigners in this one. It's called Dracula because there's a vampire and that's why it's called Dracula. Uh, and I think we can all be very thankful that it was not, uh, they didn't stick with their first draft name of Japula for releasing it. In America. Yeah, that uh, was um, that was unfortunate. Try explaining <laughs> to people that that's a good movie and watch the eyes uh, turn away from you in pity. So thanks, uh, Toho or your American distributor for calling it Lake of Dracula. Um, <laughs> much happier with that. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't know if Arrow would have picked it up and put it out if it was just called Japula. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, it's not a not a good look. Yeah. And then I guess is it called? And you would you would probably know because you're the you're the expert. You got a podcast for God's sake. <laughs> um, I think it's actually called the Bloodthirsty Eyes in Japanese. That's what the the name translates to. Am I wrong? I've seen that in a few places. I've also seen Cursed Mansion, Bloodsucking Eyes. 
mm-hmm. as a uh, original title as well. I'm cool with calling it Lake of Dracula. I mean, I suppose in the 70s, Japan seen all the Hammer stuff that's come out over there. Right, and, absolutely. And we're at the point to where Dracula equals vampire, much like, say, like when Germany brought in a lot of the kaiju films, they threw the name Frankenstein in all the titles, even though Frankenstein was nowhere in there, just to play off the Frankenstein Conquers the World success. So, yeah, I could see using the word Dracula, I suppose, but yeah, it's not a Dracula story, but it does feel no. kind of influenced by Hammer quite a bit. Oh yeah, very much so. And the thing about the movie, when I, when you watch it, is it's definitely uh, the director, Michio Yamamoto, had to have seen Terrence Fisher, and it's a lot similar to, was it Son of Dracula, where the guy's been uh, vampirized uh, sort of against his will and then turned into the vampire and is kind of held prisoner in the house and then he gets freed. Uh, Brides of Dracula. Brides, Brides of Dracula, Dracula. Yeah. that's the one. Which also doesn't have Dracula in it, but, you know. Yes, and barely any brides, quite frankly. True. Um, but the, uh, <laughs> speaking of things that angered me as an adolescent boy, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's very similar to that. And so I think maybe that's a, a touchstone that, that Yamamoto would have seen. And then the other thing that's it's really, really got a lot of is that sort of late era Hitchcock, right? Hmm. Where there's a woman and she's in trouble, but her trouble is psychological. And there's the sort of the heavy Freudian component. Uh, it, it felt very much like an attempt to sort of combine Hitchcock and Hammer on a Toho Studios budget, basically. Wow. The, the actress, I, I don't think really can, is strong. She's she's no Tippy Hedren, let's put it that way. Sure. But I think that that was the other half of that component as I was watching it. It's like, this is super uh, meditative and dreamy and uh, inward focused, even for a Japanese film. And, <laughs> oh, that's it. It's the other half is it's late Hitchcock. Yeah. I had not considered the the Hitchcock influence here, but now that you've said that, I, I can't help but see it. Granted, like you said, she's not T.P. Hedren and, and she's not a blonde. Um, well, I think that they were pre- pretty pressed to find blondes in Japan in 1971. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> Although she does have that sort of that um, uh, that that kicky friend who's uh, the nurse, right? Who's sort of yeah. Everyone talks about movies about being actually about social anxiety, but there's a lot of sort of fun. Japanese cultural stuff going on sort of in the margins where it's about who gets to run your life. Is it going to be the doctor? Is it going to be uh, somebody else? Should I live here in this uh, house that I feel a sort of an ancestral connection to, even if it's a, a mythical one, or should I be out in the city, you know, having fun like my friends are? It's it's deeper. There's more to it than just woman in house vampire. I think. <laughs> Which is half the battle for me anyway. Woman, house, vampire, right. I'm already yeah, halfway yeah, you're, you're, I'm, 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 I'm not complaining, obviously. <laughs> I am a woman, house, vampire guy from day one. But <laughs> but I, I like it when there's other things going on and you and you're as you're watching a movie, you're doing more than thinking, man, that vampire hasn't shown up for a while. Where's the vampire? I mean, you, you, I was going to bring it up too, that there are these Japanese cultural elements, especially, you know, in the 60s and 70s, in a film featuring a monster that is pretty much European. Uh, yeah. You know, we we are bringing in this kind of European monstrous influence. We're not doing Japanese vampires. You do have the Japanese elements and especially the role of women and all of that going on. It's a really interesting mix. And of the three films, and again, they're called a trilogy, but they're not really. No, they're there's no connection. Of the three, I think this one is the strongest in showing that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely the one that you suspect the, the screenwriter and I know nothing about the credited screenwriters. I don't know if they were just hacks or if they had flashes of caring about their job, like Jimmy Sangster did, but they certainly seem to have put some effort into making a movie that you would care about as a story 
as, as opposed to just, you know, a, a sort of a vamp fest, which they easily could have done. I mean, if you, if you imagine this with cutting and beats like a Godzilla picture mm-hmm. uh, where you're really just playing for time until Godzilla shows up, this is not that. This is not a 70s horror film where the reason you have, it takes forever to drive to the cannibal's house is because you've got to fill 68 minutes of film somehow. <laughs> There's a story happening in this movie, which is part of what makes the psychological underpinnings of it so interesting, even though the actual sort of story of the vampire is, is kind of weird and anticlimactic, I think, again, from our Western hammery perspective, mm-hmm. the way that the vampire is, he really just wants to hang out in his, his creepy dream house. He doesn't need to be attacking people, but if your dog's going to run away, what are you going to do, right? <laughs> The vampire is played by Shin Kashida, and I thought he cut a pretty interesting figure. I, I liked looking at him as a vampire. I loved the eye effects that they did here. Oh, yeah. The, the golden eyes oh, are strong. That was really good. When she sort of reveals the vampire in the, in her art, mm-hmm. it's an old bit, and it's been done a million times. It's been done in freaking Dracula, uh, the, the return of Dracula from uh, the 50s mm-hmm. uh, did that. But, man, does it work when it works. You know, again, whoever the set design guy was production design guy really stepped it up i mean first of all that house is great oh yes the vampire house is great so her house her lake house and then the vampire sort of weird mansiony house is great the carfax in honshu i guess and then (laughs) um all the sort of incidental bits are are really good and that and the normally often you see an artist's art in a movie and it's like well this was obviously something that uh some guy knocked out in between painting the walls of the set but this is really you know i think it's it's effective and and, and works with the the psychology that they established. Right. Uh, the the painting is you know this pastoral or or landscapey kind of photo uh, painting, but it's got that big golden eye right in the middle of it. And this is something yep. that our main character, uh, our lead, is painting. She kind of attributes it to a dream. She doesn't know where it came from. And really, the beginning of the movie is this dream, or at least this what she's told yeah. is a dream, and she's accepted as a dream. But really, she has had encounters with this vampire before, and that's something that we learn as we go. That said, yeah. we do have the doctor there as well, the doctor boyfriend, and there's some maybe some hypnotism going on, trying to regress her memories and figure out what's going on there. So did it happen? Did it not happen? There's the Hitchcockian thing. It's just a really well-thought-out and well-paced film with all the different pieces here that have their little spotlights but never really taking away from the, the whole not to keep coming back, and this is kind of insulting, really, but <laughs> I think you and I both sort of started watching it thinking, well, here we go, Dracula in a lake. And then, <laughs> I think in my case, certainly pleasantly uh, surprised and then drawn in. And then even though, obviously, it's not Godard or anything, it turns out to be a real movie with with human beings in it and real concerns. And the the notion of the hypnotism, it does it happen, does it not happen, was it a dream, is it not a dream, is there some other uh, aspect to it, is it all a, a cover memory for just having been assaulted in that house? You don't know where it's going to go until the very end, and even then you kind of don't know, because the movie is, is so uh, dreamlike throughout that the notion of its sort of authority to tell you what was going on, it compromises itself on purpose to leave you with this sort of lingering sense of unease and questioning, which is the mood of the film and is, is part of why uh, it works so well. And, and again, without that cinematography, none of it would have worked, mm-hmm. but it, it just nails every part of that 
<laughs> it, it nails the ambiguity, if that's a phrase you can use without <laughs> sounding like an idiot. <laughs> I became more and more aware of uh, the lighting and the shadows as the film continued. And I, I wonder if that was intentional to, to yeah. really kind of cast the film and what the reality of what's happening in the story further and further into the shadows to have that. And, and again, given, mm-hmm. given how garbagey those day for night shots are in hammer films of the same year, the lighting guy, the, the production really cared to, to make all the shots for the limits of 1971 uh, work a lot better. Even during the final struggle there, there's a little struggle pushback with the vampire and the doctor kind of going at it on a balcony. Even in an action sequence like that, which could have just been shot flat, you know, let's focus on the action. You still have the deep shadows and, and the banister casting this darkness across the background. Yeah. It was gorgeous. So it was really good. Um, I was really surprised, especially... This is a Toho production, and I'm a kaiju yeah. fan. I expect Toho to put out giant monster movies. I know they did more than that, but that's mm-hmm. what they're known for to this monster kid. So to see that Toho not didn't just do one or two, but three serious vampire films was pretty astonishing to me. I mean, they also distributed Kurosawa. They True. were not like, True. you know, cartoon people. You and I, I think, have, share the same expectations of seeing a Toho film, and obviously they did not have an ample budget for this film either. They have the same sort of constraints that Hammer does, and they solve them the same sort of way with writing and charisma and uh, lighting and um, uh, and set design. Hammer just lucks into having that great mansion, but I mean, mm-hmm. these guys went out and worked. And, and I think I guess if we're looking for a weakness, which is mean, but the casting, I guess, is, is where it really sh- it shuts down. I mean, the Dracula, uh, like you say, Shin Nishida, was it? Kushida. Uh, Kushida. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a lot to do. No. So. Uh, he's tall and imposing and weird looking, so good. But the other characters, at any given moment, there's a sort of an impatience with them that I think a better actor maybe would have uh, would have cured you of or, or let you not think of how sort of inert um, uh, Akiko actually is as a as a protagonist and um, how uh, useless and stupid Doctor Saki is. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that those sorts of things sort of bubble to the forefront, and, and obviously. We're meant to say, oh, medical science is helpless. Psychiatry and psychology only get you into more trouble. Uh, But uh, it would be nice if those were attached to characters that you actually, to actors that you actually sort of felt could could live up to the roles. Sure. And I think this film and the other two films benefit from being done in the 70s at Toho as opposed to during the heyday of the giant monster movies. Because, you know, those movies, they were just cranking out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I love them. Don't get me wrong. I, I adore even the worst of the Godzilla films. I love them. But, you know, you can tell. <laughs> they're yeah. just kind oh, of, absolutely. they're a machine, they're a factory, and they're just cranking them out. The fact that they did these over the period of several years or a few years, you know, making them have to stand on their own, I think really worked to, to yeah. make this, especially this one. This one's my favorite of the three. I actually haven't seen the the uh, first one yet, but I think this is definitely better than the third one. Okay. Um, the third one's kind of all over the place. I, you probably have a real guest to come, come on and talk about that one. But this one is just, it, you can't, I think, legitimately say that this is an A movie. No. That this is, you know, but I think I can say that so much of it works on such a higher level than it needs to or should have, given, like you say, 1971, given, like you say, Toho, that... It is a constant, thrilling, enjoyable thrill to watch that film in a way that it isn't. Even maybe a, a more technically gifted movie that, that you would watch and say, well, you could have done better, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you, you watch something, 
Uh, like, like, for example, Dracula 80, 1972, which is, again, Hammer. And you're just left frustrated because they wasted so much of what they could have had. I mean, they had Joanna Lumley, for God's sake. How do you waste Joanna Lumley, I ask you, shaking your lapels? Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, I love that movie, but then I understand where you're coming from, too. So, yeah. So I feel like, you know, you can compare this, you know, brand to brand. And Toho actually does a better job than Hammer with kind of the same property. And that's... Uh, and it, again, as you say, I love all Hammer movies uh, down to the absolute worst and cheapest, garbagiest of the Mummy movies. But um, <laughs> hey, now <laughs> I am, but I am uh, ride or die that this uh, sort of takes the latter Hammer films out and teaches it an important lesson about the homeless. I can see that, uh, and I will rank this uh, in there if I were to say, you know, here's my list of best vampire movies from the '70s. This is in mm-hmm. there. I mean, the other two yeah. probably not, but this one definitely is and i'm so glad that it's out that people can see it now and see it oh, yeah, look gorgeous thing. i mean the color oh, yeah. is amazing i mean japanese cinema when they are on they are on when it comes to yeah. the color and this looks amazing and kind of hazy with the lake stuff and we were even talking right. about the little house you know the house that they i'm sure they didn't build it but the house they found uh for you know, the vampire's house and the house that the girls goes to. It's not just, okay, here's a house in the background. They move the camera all around it. We've got shots from the roof. We got shots from a distance from this side, from that side. They're really highlighting it. And never once do you get bored because right. of how it's shot. And it's very, yeah. very fluid, very dynamic. And it's part of the, the effect of the film. And again, I think it's because the director isn't bored. The director, like you say, he's not cranking this out to meet a deadline. Mm-hmm. He's got a project in his head and he wants you to sort of see it. And Hey, um, how about the score? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I wanted to go to the music. Isn't that good? Isn't that isn't that fun? It is I mean, amazing. it's seventies mm-hmm. and Japan and horror y but not horror horror. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's I, I gun to my head, I'm not sure it works with the movie, but I really like the score. I'm a film score geek. You know, I always talk about, talk about the film music in these episodes and uh, the composer, I, I cannot pronounce Japanese names. Dominique Lampsey yeah. has to school me on this. Richiro Manabi, maybe? Yeah, I, I'm not sounds sure. good to me. But you're, you're talking to another guy, Jin, on this question. Hey, question's. you've nailed a couple of the Japanese pronunciations better than I ever could. Uh, but he did uh, some kaiju work. I mean, he did Godzilla versus Megalon in this film. Uh, you know, there are some moments that maybe don't quite fit what's happening on screen. But then I'm a white guy in 2019 watching the movie. Right. Yeah. You, we don't know what the Japanese audience was thinking in 1971. We, we wouldn't know that even if we were Japanese. Frankly, it'd be a whole different ge- generation to them them as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This may be my Western preconceptions, and it may just be that part of the goal of making the score kind of dissonant with the imagery is to add to that sense of unreality that Yamamoto is quite palpably trying with every other aspect of the film. And so, if the score and like I say, it's a good score. I very much liked it. Mm-hmm. And I think it has an effect, but I think the effect, I guess, maybe is deliberately orthogonal in some cases, or, or at least skew to the effect of the cinematography and, and the red and the direction of the rest of the film. It does something, which is more than <laughs> many film scores do. This has been Cinema Talk with Ken Ice. It does it something. Does something. <laughs> I think it has been released uh, on CD at one point i think i've stumbled across it somewhere i don't own it yet but i'd love to own it because it is music that i'd like to listen to apart from the film because it is enjoyable just on that level although i don't know if i needed all the stingers every time we saw the vampire bites yeah well i mean (laughs) over the top there but you know i think i think some of that is some of that is the sort of thing where you have and you have this in opera too it's not i'm not being essentialist when i say that this is common in kabuki but there are 
elements that you have to have in kabuki theater to tell you this is what's happening mm -hmm. and the recognition of that element in the same way that we recognize that dun 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 you <laughs> know in, in a western film score is the permission to the audience to be part of this moment it's like it's having a little ritual moment so i think that stinger for the bite it's sending important information on a sort of a dramaturgical level that even though, like you say, uh, two white guys watching this on, on our couch in 2019, it's not going to have the same effect as it would in a theater full of people who are conditioned uh, by a lifetime of watching movies to what those sounds mean and, and how they work. And again, you can go through the whole canon of, of uh, ridiculous uh, noises that, that Western soundtracks make at specific times from record scratch on down to sort of say, oh, yeah, we have our same ridiculous vocabulary. We just don't recognize it because we, like those audiences, spent decades being inured to it and being taught that that's the noise that that thing makes, right? True. And, you know, I said that it, I probably didn't need it as much, but then my favorite film is Creature from the Black Lagoon, and that one's got <laughs> a very obvious stinger that got used, not just in that movie, but about a dozen others by Universal in that era. So, yep. you know, who am I to talk, I guess? <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I guess that, that it sort of goes with the it's what you know. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that, that I, I think is interesting that we're talking about how Japanese the movie is and how it appeals so strongly or, or, or is intended, I guess, to appeal so strongly to Japanese audiences. But the fact that it works so well for for us mm -hmm. now is a real credit to the, the underlying strength of the vision and sort of the, I guess, the universality of the vampire myth, regardless of how, what uh, cultural lens you're viewing it through. Of the classic monster movie archetypes, you've got the Dracula, the Frankenstein's monster, the werewolf, the mummy, whatever. Do you think the Dracula is the strongest because it does have the pre-film mythology that comes along with it? I mean, I think that Dracula is the strongest for a lot of reasons. Yeah, the vampire, I think, is is a deeper uh, cut, if I may, sure. than <laughs> anything except maybe the werewolf. I think the werewolf is probably as strong. It's just, although it, the first werewolf, the, the Wolfman movie is way better than Dracula as a film, but the, there's no werewolf novel that's great. Right. The werewolf of Paris is not about a werewolf. It's about a, a cannibal. And so we don't have, I think, the reinforcement that we do with, with Dracula, where there are not just Dracula, but there are many, many other great vampire novels. And so that myth is much stronger for us, I guess. Whereas the werewolf myth, uh, although individual films can be super great about it, it, it doesn't have that reinforcement, I guess, from the rest of culture. I, th that's the reason I would say Dracula beats the Wolfman on, on those metrics, because if you go straight movie questions, werewolves do amazingly well on the cinema, given how uh, sort of weak they are in the rest of, uh, of, of culture. Yeah, the, the Wolfman film was pretty much that mythology. I'm putting air quotes on an audio podcast. Right. So yeah. that mythology yeah. <laughs> was invented for the film. It wasn't it didn't have the same strong folklore roots right. that, say, Dracula does. I do wonder about that, like what it would take to... Uh, I don't know, give some of these other monsters the uh, the same footing that Dracula has. And I don't know if it's even possible because it does have such a strong real world I mean, myth going back to Vlad, yeah. you know, Vlad. Right, I mean, yeah, back to Vlad and even back farther than that. I mean, there's, you know, mm -hmm. vampires in, in Greek philosophy classes. They're, they're teaching the, the class, you know, how Apollodorus recognized the Lamia type stuff is going on. So the vampire goes, depending on how you, how you count him, at least, you know, 2,000 years before poor Vlad. And then similarly, werewolves do, uh, and the notion of someone who lives among us and can turn into a ravening monster at any time is <laughs> is always going to be relevant. And, you know, during famine, it becomes even more relevant. That seems to be the 
historical tie into werewolf outbreaks. But for some reason, I guess once you get fat and happy, you'd prefer to forget about it. And so are all our werewolves become serial killers now uh, is, is, I guess, the, the, the way that we do things, um, <laughs> which is fine. It's not like I don't love a good serial killer movie, but you kind of feel for the poor werewolf there. Do you have a lot of experience with other Japanese horror properties or films? I mean, I, I discovered J-horror, I think, the same week everyone else did when Ringu uh, dropped. And then I saw <laughs> and then I saw Uzumaki, which was both good and bad in that it totally spoiled me for all other Japanese horror. So it's like, well, it's good, but it's no Uzumaki was my response to literally everything after I saw Uzumaki, including a lot of American horror. But I didn't really sort of go back into the Japanese horror tradition until after uh, Ringu dropped and sort of to say what's going on. But I so for example, I saw Onibaba a, a few years back because I was looking on lists of great horror movies and there it was. And I said, oh, it's a Japanese horror movie before um, uh, Ringu. Let's watch that. And of course, Onibaba is a freaking masterpiece of a movie. Uh, talk about your atmosphere those reeds blowing are scarier than half the monsters in every other movie put together. But I hadn't really, you know, I, I had not come up through a deep dive from Japanese horror from, for me, Japanese film was Kurosawa and people who wanted to be Kurosawa. And then after Ringu, I discovered, Oh, and also they made genre films. Onibaba. I have not talked about here on the show yet. I've got a guy who's been wanting to do it with me and, and eventually I will, because I've, I've not seen it, but what he's told me about it and what you just oh, said, you need to watch really it. Has my interest you need to watch it. Oh, it's so good. My experience with uh, Japanese genre films is not very deep at all. I mean, I got the Kaiju films and you know, a handful of other things here and there, Goki body snatcher from hell, things like that. But yeah, I, I, there's a lot out there that uh, I really want to explore a lot more. And maybe this is a good, entry point for people who are interested in learning a little bit more about classic or, or not so classic, I yeah, guess, Japanese or horror. Sub-classic. Because it, <clears throat> right, it's got the familiar touchstones that, you know, us American monster kids might have with the Dracula story kind of woven in here. But it's got those Japanese things as well. So this might be a good entry point for some it folks. It could be. I mean, it, but the characteristic of, of what I get out of Japanese films in the 50s, 60s, 70s is that things like those those branches over the lake where we would look at them and say, that's a good atmospheric touch. That's what people are coming to the movie to watch in, in a lot of Japanese film is, is that play of light and shadow and that vision of nature, even if it's a vision of sort of a horrific or nightmarish nature, that that's a big part of the film experience in Japan. Maybe you, you see that and you're, you're better prepped for those reads in Onibaba than I was. Uh, and, and you're better prepped for, for other Japanese films that are, that are basically about how the ocean is terrible and will kill you <laughs> or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, and of course, you know, everyone should always be watching Kurosawa. And, and once you've seen that, you know, oh, sure. you're ready. If, if it wasn't a samurai or a Godzilla, it, it was almost unimaginable to me that it could have been a film until, until Ringu came out. I mean, I sort of <laughs> vaguely knew that they had an art cinema like everybody does, but I, I mostly ignored it if it wasn't by Kurosawa. I knew who Kurosawa was, but I didn't start watching Kurosawa until film school, and they showed us Ron over the course of a couple of right. days, and just fell in love. Oh, yeah, so, well, absolutely. Yeah. That's why Steven Spielberg gets to go to heaven, by the way. <laughs> That's why you can go around you know, like murdering orphans, because he made Ron. He, he paid for Ron, so sorry, orphans. Well, <laughs> on that note... <laughs> The thoughts and opinions of Monster Kids Radio guests do not necessarily reflect. That's right. Mr. Godfrey would like it to be known that he disapproves of the murder of orphans, even if you funded the creation of the greatest film Shakespeare ever. Because Derek hates art. Yeah, that's it. That's it. 
<laughs> so um, I think we've pretty much hit all the big points about Lake of Dragon, at least why it works for me. And why it works. Is there anything else we've missed that you want to mention? I guess we could sort of talk a little bit about, you know, how it sort of takes some of the, it, it very much takes the, the parts of the vampire story that they want and leaves the rest behind. So you have the mysterious coffin delivery, just like in Dracula and you have stuff with a dog, just like in Dracula, but it's kind of different as well because it, the dog is, um, uh, is haunted and, 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 and bitten. He's not Dracula transformed. So there's sort of other stuff happening. And I like the way that it sort of plays with the, the other furniture, the other silverware of the myth, right? That it, it, it takes that and, 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 and plays with it. In, in sort of fun ways. You mean there's no Zoltan, the Hound of Dracula? No, sadly. Oh, but for man. example, making <laughs> making the Lucy figure her sister instead of her girlfriend, sure. that's a change. And I think it moves the movie better towards, oh, this is about a family that has its own problems and conflicts, as opposed to this is a bunch of random bourgeoisie that Dracula started eating, right? And even some of the familiar elements, like the coffin being delivered. I loved the way that happened in this. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's so kind of mundane. It's like, eh, it's a delivery truck. It just shows up and here's a box. Here you go. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's so just normal. It's so just regular day activity stuff happening here. Yet it is the triggering event for what's happening with the guy who lives there. Obviously, the caretaker type, mm-hmm. uh, he, he doesn't do so well. And then we find out later what happened to the, the truck that brought the uh, coffin to begin exactly. with. But, but even that, I mean, it's just so mundane, but it is... I don't know, I just really like it. Yeah. It gives it this this bit of texture that is so familiar. I mean, it, it's it's yeah. heightened, right? Because yeah. it, it's connected to all these other vampire movies, but it's mundane, so it's believable. So it's exactly what a horror movie should do, is take an event that you've seen every day or thought about every day, but not really thought about, and then made you say, oh, but what if that was a vampire? Right? Right. And and it takes that sort of that, uh, the, the girls being rivals for the same boyfriend and turns that into uh, the Dracula Mina versus Lucy duality. It does the bit with the uh, dubious psychiatrists, which is, of course, one of my favorite things in all horror. And someday you've got to have me on to talk, you know, the seventh victim and, and uh, oh. the, the, the dubious Dr. Judd movies, seventh victim and cat people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> those are great. My, films. my theory that those he's the films. mastermind behind both of those. Right. That he. Oh, wow. OK. He runs the, the cult because he has Catman powers or something. I just I don't trust it. He's, he's too oily. Um, but 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 again, you have that sort of you depend on psychiatry in, in the 70s, at least to give you knowledge of who you are as a person. But you don't trust that person because uh, they're manipulating you. They, they use that knowledge in, in bad ways. And that that duality is so strong and is so I mean, it was certainly present in the 70s, just zeitgeist. But then to have it embodied in that character is also kind of a duplicitous weasel just all those bits where something is has a meaning in the real world it has a meaning in sort of the dream world and it has a meaning in vampire myth and all of those working in parallel and sort of reinforcing each other with only rarely does the film come and knock on your head and say hey look what i'm doing i'm draculating (laughs) <laughs> and i appreciate that though i mean we don't see him turn into a bat right. we don't see the traditional dracula tropes which i think work to this film's benefit i'm sure part of it was budgetary how are they going to spend money on on doing the transformation sequence or whatever but these limitations choosing not to even do that i think works to the film's benefit and making it even more is this really happening until you get to the end and you see the fangs but is this really happening you know we haven't seen him do the vampire stuff so maybe you know so i think that kind of works as well for it uh, for it so you do have some departure from the traditional tropes but again just kind of layering those mundane events with the dracula elements or like you said the lego pieces just makes the film work and i know your mileage 
varies much differently than mine when it comes to Dracula 80, 1972, and Satanic Rites of yeah, Dracula. Right. But that's, that's another reason why I love those two films, is that you are taking those gothic Dracula tropes, but applying them to modern day things. Yeah, and again, I, I love the project of those movies. Mm-hmm. I, I thousand percent there for Dracula wearing a cape in Carnaby Street and no one noticing or caring. But they didn't do that. They had him just lurk around an abandoned church. Like, he could have worked around an abandoned church in 1888, for God's sake. And so in Satanic Rites, he's got an office building and he's he's running his little plague club. But um, again, he's not a part of the world. He's a recluse. He's a Howard Hughes figure. They sort of keep backing away from legitimately confronting the 60s, the world of the 60s with the world of Dracula. It's the same sort of way that Hammer's like, well, we hate aristocrats, but we tug our forelock to them anyway, right? They, they have this sort of weird, uh, confused, very English um, uh, inability to rebel correctly. It doesn't weaken the good hammers. It sort of informs them. But in the bad hammers, it really shows up. <laughs> not to be not to be that guy, but it, it really shows up. And that's why I like having different people on the show with, with differing uh, opinions and viewpoints of these things. Uh, which is why I wanted to have you on because having talked to you over the years at the Lovecraft Film Festival, having shared panels with you, I, I knew you knew your stuff and I wanted to get your stuff on my show. So. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm happy to bring stuff. <laughs> I, have, I have a package of it that was dropped off by a weird Japanese guy not too long ago. So. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if I want to hear about what happens when you open that package, but uh, <laughs> I'll get around to it after this podcast. Oh, there we go. There we go. Yeah. Well, speaking of after this podcast, we've been chatting for about an hour and I think I've said everything I want to say about Lake of Dracula. I think we've said the important things. Yeah. I think the class can go watch Lake of Dracula now. Yes. Yes. I can take notes on why I was right. And then, <laughs> and then we can, we can have the graduate seminar on Lake of Dracula later uh, when we've convinced a university to hire us to do it. <laughs> I'm on board. I'm unemployed right now. I'll take that job. Sure. All right. Fantastic. <laughs> so, We've had you on Monster Kid Radio for about an hour, but people can hear you on another podcast on a regular basis. They can. And it is called? Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, in which my uh, boon uh, trans-border companion, Robin Laws, who is a fellow game designer, fellow cinephile, fellow nerd, talk about games, and we talk about movies, and we talk about food, and occultism, and time travel, and weird stuff that Robin finds in the news, and spying, and all the kinds of stuff that uh, that make a life full and well-lived. Uh, that's uh, That drops every Friday. Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com. There you go. And I'll make sure there's a link to this in the show notes as well. Uh, I've met Robin once at a Lovecraft Film Festival. Great guy. And then, like yep. I said, I consider you a friend, Ken. So you're welcome Absolutely. back here anytime. Oh, man. Anytime you, anytime you need a arm-waving opinion with way too many illusions, you just bring me in. <laughs> Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. <laughs> The conversation with Ken actually was recorded several months ago, back before Monster Bash, and I've been sitting on it for a little while, just, I don't know why I just was. Since that recording, he has had some new award nominations and a win. He has won the 2019 Any Award for Best Setting with his book, The Fall of Delta Green. You can learn about the Ennies at any.awards.com. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. They're basically the annual tabletop role-playing game awards. So congratulations again for winning another award for another quality book. Right on. I'll make sure there's a link to the Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff podcast in the show notes as well. Thanks again, Ken.
followed the fiery depths of a mysterious alien planet comes the most horrifying experience in motion picture history. Never before has such a frightening, oozing mass of stark terror crept across the screen. Body Snatcher from Hell. From a strange world in outer space comes this fiendish vampire satisfying his sinister and evil lust by feasting on the blood of his victims. Undead are my allies. The night is my domain, and the dark, dank tomb my dwelling place. I feast on human blood. May be yours, so beware. Beware. Turn of Dracula. From beyond the grave comes the dreaded Dracula, spreading corruption and horror wherever his cursed shadow falls. Innocent beauty becomes the vampire's prey as paralyzing fear turns to hypnotic fascination. You will do as I say. Yes. I bring you death. A living death. One drop of your blood and you are bound to me. Jenny Blake's soul must be freed, Doctor. And all of the souls of her victims, if any. But how? With a pointed stake right through the heart. as a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a whole short story or 
a novel, a chapter or two at a time. Join us for our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu mythos at the end of the month. Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Black Clock Audio Tales. Part of darkmyths.org. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for listening this week, and thank you for doing everything that you do to help promote the show, being sort of our cyber street team by sharing the posts, retweeting tweets, and just letting people know about what we do here at Monster Kid Radio. I have a blast producing the show, and, well... I hope you have a blast listening to it. You can learn about everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over at our website at monsterkidradio.net, where you can find our contact information. Our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. And our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. If you want to talk about anything that you've heard about on this episode of the podcast or the previous 431 Wow. Uh, feel free to send it in, and we'll address it on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. Also, remember, we've got a contest going on that I announced last week. You still have a few more days to enter. Last week, we talked about the movie The Man Without a Body, where, well, some mad scientist types took Nostradamus' head and put it on a body, and it ran around causing some damage and it's a wacky movie highly recommend it and there was a good time talking with micah harris about it last week well the contest has to do with that i want to know what famous head from history you would put on your frankenstein monster and well i want to know what the name of the movie would be and maybe tell me a little bit about the story of the film call it in again 503-479-5657 we'll play all the submissions on the show and i'll put it up for a vote the three that receive the most votes will get a free book it will be the promotional book that Micah and I released at Monster Bash, which includes one of his stories and one of my Mark Temple stories. Good luck. Also, remember that we are an Amazon affiliate. I'm going to make sure there are links to everything that we've talked about in this episode that you can buy for yourself through Amazon. If you buy them through the Amazon link, we get a little bit of a kickback. It helps us out. It helps us keep the pod lights on at the podcast. So if you can help us out that way, that's phenomenal as well. And... This extends to that awesome Criterion release, the big Godzilla set that they're releasing later this year. You can pre-order through Amazon, and we get a chunk of that as well. I'll make sure the YouTube video that I released earlier this month announcing what this month's content was going to be is embedded on the website as well. So if you want to find out what's going to be happening next week, well, you got to go watch the YouTube video. Thanks to all the contributors. Again, thank you for listening, and thank you to the band The Strendos, which I guess is Spanish for The Thunder. Anyway, uh, the EP is called La Mujer de Hotel Montaña. <laughs> I am probably butchering that. Sorry, guys. Anyway, the song is also titled La Mujer de Hotel Montaña, and it's awesome. Go check them out at thestruendos.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.